Uh, how many of you guys remember at the dawn of, uh, of video games, so this is, I'm talking to people that are probably at least as old as me, I'm 36, but uh, you, you, the dawn of video games when, like the Atari 2600, just how many of you guys remember the Atari 2600? Yep. Okay. Now, on your bulletin when you came in, there's a picture of something there. Do you, this is the controller for the Atari 2600. Do you remember what that was called? What? Someone say it loud enough. Joystick. All right. Now, th- clearly there's a connection. I remember when I got one of these, my grandfather bought one for me, and my, um, my, I was, like, I don't know, five or six years old, and my mom looked at, looked at him like, Dad, I can't stand you, and she looked at me like, your head will probably explode any moment. I was so excited with joy. No, I mean, this is just the greatest thing, but she thought I, it would ruin my, she was also a teacher, by the way, she thought this is going to ruin his life. But I remember trying to play this game and controlling this stuff, and even the graphics were just, it was like, you're just a rectangle chasing a triangle. That's all that it was. And it was like, this is awesome, but... The whole idea was that there was a connection at the very beginning of this sort of idea that there's a connection between control and joy. That if we could have more control, we would have more joy. And the idea, that's the idea isn't really new to us if you, if you aren't old enough to know an Atari 2600. The idea of having control and having it linked to our joy, that's something we're kind of aware of all the time aren't we? That if we could just take control. Some of you, like, you're like me, you're in a situation of having kids in sports and, and you're thinking, I have to get control of this. I have no joy. This is just, cra- I, have, I have unwisely increased my schedule to a pace I can't keep. I need control. And we start thinking about all the things we could put under our control that would give us more joy. And what the, the sort of necessary outcome of that kind of thinking is that in some way it influences our own relationship with God that says, if I could sort of put him under a little bit of control, that would be so good. I'd have more joy. If I could at least dictate the terms of my relationship with him and the demands that are surrounded, that would be great. I'd have a little bit more joy because I'd have more control. And we're going to be taking a look at this idea of God who is wildly uncontrollable today. Would you do this before we go into that? Would you join me as we pray and sort of seek that God who is uncontrollable to join us? Or maybe say another way that we would join him in his work. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you are an uncontrollable God. We consider it an honor and a privilege to be able to join you in the work that you are already doing in us and in the world and through us. Lord, we acknowledge that we are not able to control anything that happens outside of this room. That in some way this this time is sacred because it's different than the rest of our week. Even the quiet of our own hearts, the stillness. God, we pray that you would speak to us, the one who is uncontrollable into our own lives, that we might sense and know and understand at least a little bit more of your great love, of your truth, and what you would intend to do in us and through us. In your name, amen. Now, if you brought a Bible, some people will pass it out to you if you want. And if you, like, need the Bible with the pages, you've got to look at it and hold it. You need some tangible. Raise your hand. Someone will give you a Bible. If you want to just follow along on the screen, it's great. If you brought your own, you want to follow along in an iPhone or iPad, we're in, we're in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4. And uh, I know that some of you guys were here last week. You heard um, my buddy Jeff Preeze. He was speaking, and um, he did, like, kind of a brave heart thing. I want to take you kind of back to where... That was. So if you weren't here, just bear with me. But if you were, just kind of go back to where you were last week. But I want you to imagine the beginning of a, of a movie. 
in which there are two clear battle, battle lines drawn. There's, a, there's the good guys, the Israelites on one side. I want you to imagine this, but I want you to imagine that sort of meadow. Let's take it even a little bit deep. It's morning. Fog on this meadow. On one side, the Israelites. There's all their sort of swords, and they're gathered together, and they're ready to fight. On the other side, the Philistines. And they're actually a more advanced army. They actually have things like chariots. They're super powerful. They're, their most famous Philistine, if you were here last week, is a guy named Goliath who comes up in about, I don't know, 13 or 14 chapters of the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. But there's, there's all these super powerful warriors over here, and their horses are all gathered. And as they breathe in the early morning, I don't even know if it's cold, but we're just going to go with it. But in the early morning, the horses make that sound. And there's this, the, the like vapor from their, that, by the way, that sound was money, by the way. I just want you to know that. I just pretty much nailed that sound, didn't I? Some of you are like, that was really good. Does anyone know what that sound's called? Snorting, snorting, sniff, breathing. What? Does someone know what it's, does it actually have a term? No one knows. Okay, but there's, so there's this the horses and the fog coming out from their nostrils. The horses are angry, and they're lined up over here. And the Israelites, the good guys are on the other side, and they're banging, and they're, we're looking at this battle about to unfold. Good guys, bad guys, horses, the snorting, whatever. And here's what it says. First Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines, the good guys. By the way, the Philistines are the always enemies, famous enemies of the Israelites and of God's people in the Bible. Just keep that in mind. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. And there we go. There's the battle lines are set. We're ready to go. It's going to be a big time showdown. We've all seen the movie trailer, the good guys, the bad guys. Here we go. Verse two. The Philistines deployed the forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. That wasn't really what we kind of hoped would happen there. The good guys kind of got destroyed. It's, the score is 4,000 and nothing, evidently. What happened there? I mean, that's not the way it's supposed to go. Maybe God didn't see, like, the trailer about how it was supposed to happen because there's, like, the mist and the horses and the, then we're supposed to, the Israelites are supposed to win. And there's this sort of clear defeat. Now imagine, again, you're in this movie scenario. And they're back at camp now. The guys who survive make it back to camp. They limp back there. The Philistines high-five in the distance, and you can kind of see these. The Israelites kind of make their way back to their camp, and they're nursing their wounds, those that survived. And they're talking about how badly they've just been defeated. And then, verse 3, when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders, who are the leaders of Israel, asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? The elders ask, we just got... We just got destroyed. We just got handled. We just got overwhelmed by the Philistines. And they asked the question, which all of us tend to ask when things don't go the way we expect them to, to go, and we say, why? And they're asking, well, why didn't this work? Did we not do the sort of God, math, algebra, whatever, I do X and Y, and then God's supposed to do Z every time. That's sort of, we proved that over and over again. What didn't we do? Why did this happen this way? Weren't we supposed to win? Like I said, did God not see the trailer for this movie? This isn't supposed to go this way. But we ask why. When we think about it, we ask why all the time. I and mean, why some of us are in a situation where our own marriages, perhaps, are on the brink. Why is it like that? Some of us, we look at our, our own maybe grown-up kids, our adult kids, we wonder why, why they weren't able to turn out the way we had hoped and prayed and raised them to be. 
Some of us who are adult kids have parents who are starting to go a little bit, a little bit sideways and we're wondering why they weren't the parents we needed them to be and why they're now acting the way that they are. Some of us wonder about why we don't have a job. Why the job we do have is demeaning and our boss is horrible and we feel trapped. Why? My kid's principal recently found out she has cancer and it's serious. And we're having the talk with my kids about another person that they know that now has cancer and what that means. And my kids are asking and our principal is asking, why is this happening? We ask why all the time. Now to look at this again, there's actually an even more bizarre part of this question that's being asked by the elders here. They actually ask, if you look at it again, they don't ask the question, why did this happen? They don't ask the question, why did we lose? They don't ask the question, why did the Philistines win? Or they don't ask the question, why didn't we win? What they ask is something far more troubling. What they ask is this question, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us? Why did the Lord bring defeat. In other words, it was within his power to prevent us from being defeated, only he didn't. Instead, he didn't bring victory, he brought defeat. It wasn't the Philistines' fault, it was God who chose to bring defeat upon us. We lost 4,000 people. Why did God choose to do that? There must have been something else that we could have done either beforehand or now as we strategize again for our next round of battle with these guys, the Philistines. But what did we not do? Because God clearly brought defeat upon us. They attribute their own suffering to God. Now you can imagine, day one of the battle, round one, they lose. They're back at camp. And you can imagine the elders trying to figure out a way in which they can actually conquer, respond, do some of their new strategy, new military strategy for taking out the Philistines, this mighty army. So here's, here's what they start doing. You can imagine, again, put yourself in the scenario. This isn't in the scripture. It's just be imagining it, trying to get us into the scenario. But imagine they're in some kind of tent. Maybe there's like a little fire or torchlight in the middle, and they're all kind of sitting around some table or some, some kind of circle, and the elders are kind of gathered going, well... I guess we could flank our men. We could go around the back. We could, you know, surprise them that way. We could, what if we dug a couple, like, holes in the middle of the battlefield and we hid during the night? And then when they ran through, we could pop out and, okay, well, that's an idea. Oh, what if we could poison their food? What if we could, you know, subject them to reality television? Whatever it is, and we just figure out some ways in which we could do something to the Philistines such that we could surprise them in some way or another. And then they're just, they're just running out of answers. And then you can imagine the camera pans to one guy who has, like, the clear light bulb face, like, I got it crash through him on his face, right there, right up close. And he says this line, second sentence of verse three. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. And you can imagine everyone's like, yeah, oh, we, this, is, this is a great idea. And you can imagine there's one guy kind of at the, the other end of the table with a cigar going, he has that famous movie line. It's so crazy, it just might work. And you can just imagine the whole, they're starting to like get a little enthusiasm. A glimmer of hope starts to sweep around the elders. We got the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. We could bring it in here, and it is awesome. Now, some of you are going, I don't really know what the Ark is. I remember growing up, there's like, Noah had an Ark. So are they like, if we only had a giant boat, that would be surprising if they had a boat. You know, bring the boat. Uh, an Ark is just simply a word that means container. 
So Noah had an ark, a container for animals. And this ark, the ark of the covenant, holds the covenant, uh, uh, it's sort of this, um, it, it holds the, the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets that Moses received from Mount Sinai in, the, in this container. It's a box. And on top of this box, there's these winged you know, uh, angels, these cherubim, they sort of have their, their wings kind of extending out over the box. And it's uh, this gold, beautiful you know, object. If you, in case you're wondering, this is the ark made famous by Indiana Jones. It, it melts people's faces. It's like this super weapon. So they're like thinking to themselves, let's bring in the face melter. We'll bring it in. It'll laser beam the Philistines and it will be awesome. And this is kind of the, you can see sort of the, the enthusiasm beginning to change a little bit. They're beginning to get pretty excited about this, this happening. Now, uh, this is the sign of God's presence. This is where God is said to dwell. His manifest presence is said to dwell among his people. And it's, it's the holiest object in all of Israel. And so when the temple is built in a little, you know, a couple years here, it goes into the holiest place in the temple. I mean, this is a big deal. Now, there's the camp. There's guys, you know, sewing up their own wounds, you know, just tough dudes with their beard. Just, you know, I'm just taking a little string out of my beard and sew up my wounds. There's a guy, you can, you can imagine in the, in the movie scenario, you're just, you're getting this walk through this embattled campment and you hear someone say something like, you can cut off my left arm. I only need one arm to kill a Philistine. And you can just imagine all this kind of tough. These guys are sort of sitting down. They've got eye patches and you know, dirt. And just, they're just looking like they've just seen the day that they thought they would never see. And then, verse 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh. And they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's, Eli is the high priest. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, to have the two sons of the high priest, is this is a rough equivalent, but it's like having two members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff accompanying the face-melting laser beam weapon you just brought in with you. And they're like, oh my gosh, there's Hophni and Phinehas and the Ark. Now, imagine, remember, the guys are sewing up their own wounds, they're cutting off their own arms, we would fight, whatever it is, and they're, they're, here comes the Ark. It's shining in gold. The little torch lights glimmering in the sort of shining gold that's coming back on these guys' faces. And they're starting to get a little bit of like, oh, that's Hophni and Phinehas too. And look at that ark. We got the face melter. Here it comes. And they start getting more and more excited. And they start building some little enthusiasm. You can imagine then these bloodied and battled, exhausted guys are now beginning to sense that maybe the tide has turned. Verse 5, when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all the shouting in the Hebrew camp? So he, they're like, no one, the Bible doesn't say, but we don't have the sense that someone was like, and one, two, three, shout. Like, it was like, here comes the ark, and the sort of battered, beleaguered army starts going, yeah, woo, yeah. And it's so loud that the ground shakes, and the Philistines across the valley, across the misty meadow, which we don't know if it's misty, I'm making it up, but they're across the way, and they go, what's the sound about? What's all that noise? What's happening over there? Now, listen to this. Verse 6. When they, the Philistines, learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into their camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has ever happened to us before. Now, the Philistines are one of the most advanced armies of the ancient world. They have chariots, they're super powerful, and they've overcome a lot. And they hear there's a God in their camp. They don't totally understand the sort of 
monotheism of sort of the Israelites, but they just go, there's a God in the camp. And they start saying, we're afraid. Now we're up against something that we don't know how to control. We're up against something that's bigger than us. What are we going to do? They start acting out this sort of fear. And and, and here's sort of what happens in in verse 8. Listen to the tone of fear here. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Now, they're sort of, again, their theology is a little funky. They're sort of understanding. But they have some idea here, because the plagues weren't in the wilderness. They were actually in Egypt. But they have some idea that there's some kind of God that they don't want to mess with. There's a God who has conquered the Egyptian army who could not be any more mighty. And they, now here's the deal. You may not believe that plagues struck the Egyptians and freed the Israelites from 400 years of captivity, but the Philistines do. And they start, they start freaking out. What are we going to do? Now you can imagine them. They're kind of like packing up all their stuff. They know now that this God is more powerful than any of the, even the Egyptian army. They're packing up their tents. But the guys who are like, we're going to stay. They're like writing their final note to the one they love the most. I love you so much, but I'm facing the face melter tomorrow, I think. I think we're in huge trouble. And I just want to let you know I'm not going to leave, but I might not make it home. And that's all the kind of stuff that's happening here. And you can sense the fear sweeping over the camp. And then a horse rides into the camp. It's not in the Bible. Don't look for it. I'm making it up. Uh, a horse rides into the camp, the Philistine camp, blue face, comically large sword. It's like this huge, absurdly large sword. And he looks at his men and he says to them, I see before me an army of my countrymen standing in defiance of tyranny. And, he, and they're like, you can see them kind of looking like, but, I, but they got the face melter. And he says this, no, no, no. Verse 9. Be strong, Philistines. Be men. Or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And that was a little bit awesome. Thank you. Um, all of a sudden, they, the Philistines have their own William Wallace, the sort of Philistine Scotsman with the blue face who says, don't run, let's fight. And now we have a movie. Now it's getting, this is getting good. Okay, because we lost, the good guys lost 4,000 guys, need a little drama, you know, that was really sad, but we need a little drama to create this epic battle which is about to happen. The Israelites bring in the face-melting presence of God with them who will laser beam the enemies without question. And the Philistines have William Wallace, and he's telling them to stand there and fight like, man, this is such a great setup. Good guys, bad guys, William Wallace, face-melter, here we go. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Wait, that wasn't the, we had a setup for another ending for this movie? We tested this ending with a few audiences. We're going to have to rewrite it? No, no. This is the way it ended. That's the battle. 9,000 or 4,000 people dying. That's sort of a little drama setup we get. That's tragic. But 30,000, now we're in desperation. We're in anger. We have great despair. The writer says that the slaughter was very great of 30,000 soldiers. And the Ark of the Covenant, the sort of 
manifest presence of God among his people, the covenant relationship established between him and his people, that ark has been taken. And the escorts of the ark, the high priest's sons, they were killed in the battle. And then you can read this later. In verse 18, Eli, the high priest, is sort of sitting on on, on like a wall or something, and he gets the news, hey, your sons are dead, the ark's been taken. He literally falls over backwards off this wall, breaks his neck. He dies. And the hits just keep on coming. Phineas' widow is in labor. She gets the news. Hey, your husband has been killed. The ark of the Lord has been taken. She gives birth to a son. She names him Ichabod, which means the glory is gone. And then she dies. I mean, it is like, is there any other, can we get any worse news? And it just keeps on going like this. Why did this happen? Didn't we do what we were supposed to do, God? I mean, isn't this how, isn't this, how this is supposed to work? We're up against something, we kind of go and get you and you kind of do your thing. Isn't that how it's, did we, what, what happened here? My guess is that if you had any understanding of, of faith, whether or not you grew up in the church, you probably learned something, a misconception. I learned it too. Which was that in some way or another, the way, faith was essentially uh, about trying to get God to be on our side. And it generally follows, this is a rough simplification here, but it generally follows a sort of a threefold pattern. One is that we admit a need for God. That we are up against things that are beyond us, so we need God's help. Secondly, we initiate some kind of spiritual practices uh, that sort of indicate our sort of you know, dedication to this idea. And then lastly, we believe in God's power to overcome them. And so that any sort of reason why we would experience pain or discomfort or that things don't work out the way that they ought is we generally go back to those three things and say, one, we have a deficiency in one of these three things. Didn't need it enough. Wasn't aware that I needed it enough. Didn't practice the right spiritual practices or I practiced the right spiritual practices, but just not enough. Or I didn't believe enough that God could actually do this. But look at Israel as an example. They clearly have a need. They lost 4,000 guys in round one of the battle. There's no question they have a need. Secondly, they initiate the sort of regular practice for beating up bad guys. We go and get God's presence in the ark. And then we also get some leaders, some sort of you know, spiritual leaders of our, of our community, Hophni and Phineas, to come with it. And did they believe? Of course they believed. When the ark showed up, they had a shout that already sounded like they had won the battle. It wasn't that they didn't believe God could do it. There's something else here. Maybe it looks like this, and it's really kind of scary. Which is to say that they they, they kind of want to bring God into what they're already doing. God, here's what we're doing. Come on with the box and make it work out for us. As opposed to saying, God, what are you doing? Can we join it? Because what they say is, we're kind of up against some stuff. God, go ahead. Take care of it for us. Do you remember in verse 7, the sort of emotional tone of the Philistines when they hear about the ark? Do you remember what that was? What was it? Fear. They're overwhelmed with fear. I guess... God is more willing to go with those who fear him than those who would attempt to use or control him. The Philistines are the profane, 
enemies of God and his people. And yet God chooses to shame himself to go with them because they fear him. They recognize that he is beyond their control. And the Israelites say, God, we got an issue. Go on out there and laser beam, melt their faces. The rest of the story, the Philistines kind of follow the same pattern as the Israelites. They try to put this box, this ark, in the pantheon of their own gods. They try to put, in the, they try to put the, the ark in their temple, and things start to not go real well for them either. But they're trying to do the same thing that all of Israel is doing, and what all of us have a tendency to do at times. Which is to say, God, if I could just get you on my side, would you just do your thing? Can I just use your power to do stuff? The trap is that all of us get into this idea of, how do we get God to be on our team so that he'll do what I need him to do for me? But that isn't faith. I want you to listen just for a moment. There is nothing that we can do. There's not enough righteous practices There is not enough religious formula. There is nothing that we can do well enough for long enough that will prevent us from experiencing pain and sorrow. Which means that all those questions we ask about, why is this happening to me? Why did this kind of go down this way? Isn't because necessarily that we did bad things and these are the consequences later on. We always tend to find, as as our nature is, to find the because answers to really complicated why questions that generally don't have good becauses. If it were true that you could be righteous enough and believe enough and have the right practices or whatever it is that we need to do, we have only to look at Jesus' own example. Never has there been someone more righteous who believed more strongly in his own father. And never was there anyone who, who understood about what it meant to follow God than Jesus who experienced great loss, great pain, and great shame. Who said on the night of his own betrayal in a prayer, Tears flowing down his face. God, is there any, Father, is there any other way that we can do this other than the cross? Jesus, who said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That in some way or another, the experience of pain isn't necessarily averted because of our righteousness or our dedication. That in some way or another, God is still beyond us. And that maybe what Jesus' example is is about submission and obedience because it's not something we get to control. Turn to chapter 7. Over the next couple chapters, the Philistines have you know, five basic cities. That, I'm paraphrasing roughly, but they have five cities and they keep moving the ark from city to city because things start happening. When the ark's in the temple, their own God falls down and his, like, his limbs break off. And then they're like, well, they're kind of weirded out by that. So they start moving the, t- the ark to different places and people start breaking out in boils. Tumors is what it says in the Bible. And they start kind of freaking out like, yeah, uh, you know, why don't you guys take the ark over here? You guys try it out for a little while. Check out the cherubim. They're beautiful. You guys have them in your city. Have a good time. They kind of, dis- you know, and they start passing this around. And eventually what happens is they start realizing the ark of the covenant of God's presence among his people is too dangerous for us to control. And so they decide, let's give it back to the Israelites. We don't know what to do with it. It's their object. Maybe it'll give them boils and they'll, you know, maybe they'll experience pain. Who knows? Chapter 7, verse 1. So the men of Kiriath came and took up the ark of the Lord. 
They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. So 20 years it's hanging out in this little town. Uh, and, I, and then it says that all the people turned back to the Lord after 20 years. But Samuel, who's seen the whole thing unfold, who has he's been operating as a prophet and now he's kind of become, taking on this more powerful leadership role, says to them, if you're serious about God, we have to address a few things. Because we don't get to just control him. He will not be controlled. He'd rather be shamed and disgraced than try to be controlled. Because he will not be controlled. And this is this in verse 3. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now he says this kind of somewhat peculiar thing for us, which he says, you got to get rid of these things called the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths. Let me just start with Ashtoreths first. Ashtoreth is a, a moon goddess and who has a number of different forms. But the one the Philistines adapted for the Ashtoreth worship was that she was a goddess of war. Power. The foreign gods that are mentioned here are talking about these gods called the Baals or the Baals. These are, these are gods of the, in the ancient world that were, that it's one god who has a bunch of different forms. But it's about fertility, you know, sort of human fertility, animal fertility, and land fertility, which means this, per, this god is also connected to weather because weather is how you get your crops to grow. So you have this, this idea of human fertility, which is pleasure, and then you have crop growth off of the, the weather, which is formed from his water, which is essentially wealth. And in the ancient world, you generally have these three categories of kind of God worship. Power, pleasure, money. And these are gods that the Israelites had evidently turned to because they could deliver on promises that are much more in tune with their own desire. In other words, they feel a lot more like they're under the control of the human heart, human desire. And Samuel says, if you're going to want to be worshiping an uncontrollable God, you have to let go of these small gods with big promises that you think you're under control over. Those things aren't going to cut it. In the Bible, God has a pattern in which he tends to let his people worship gods other than himself. And he also tends to let them be protected by those gods as well. And Samuel's saying, if you want to be, if you want to turn back to God, you're going to have to let go of those other gods right now. Let me ask you for a moment. Samuel's in the room. Which gods specifically of their forms, maybe it falls in one of those three categories vaguely, which of those gods is Samuel saying to you? You're going to have to let those go. You've been hanging on to those for a little while. In the absence of God, these 20 years maybe, you adopted some other things. But, may, but what, who, which gods are you serving? Which gods have garnered your loyalty and made some promises to you because of their immediacy of their delivery? Well, right now you can have this. Does it fall under a category of the sort of pleasure, power, money? I'll tell you what it is for me. I'm discovering recently that I have a huge need for power that I did not recognize before. And it comes out in this form. It's totally surprising. It's a little small place in my heart. 
I never thought of myself as this person, but it manifests itself in anger. I realize, too, that what happens to me, if I'm disrespected, I'm marginalized, I'm offended, I'm in some way wounded, what I'll do is I will pack and energize this little part of my heart. And generally, I will release my own power on people that are completely unconnected to the source of the anger. It generally ends up being my kids. Where, you know, like the other night, we're having, uh, my oldest is having a little tough time getting into the fall routine of getting to bed on time and all this kind of stuff. And so I have this conversation, I have this conversation with him that is incredibly too intense about him getting to bed. And my wife goes, did you really need to get that fired up about it with him? He's in tears about him not being in bed. My wife goes, did you really want to do that? And I start going, no, I have no idea where that came from. So I take him downstairs. He's crying, and I'm now crying. And I'm looking at an eight-year-old who I've overpowered with my anger. And I have to say this phrase three times. I think it's once for him and three times for me. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Tears streamed down his face. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I used a power need in that moment because it was immediate and it could deliver right then. I felt like it was under my control until I saw its effects. What is it for you? What is it for you where there's these small gods who are making these big promises which are pulling you away from the one to whom you belong? Some of us need to let go of some things like that. Some of us need to put the other gods away. Verse 4 says this, The Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. What do you need to put away? Is it manipulation? Is it some kind of pleasure thing? Is it some kind of justification for a secret behavior that you have? Is there addiction that you're holding on to that nobody else knows about that is shaping the way that you operate because it is promising to deliver something to you right then, even if it has long-term negative effects for you? What is it? Is it a behavior, an attitude, a habit? Some of us need to let go of a few things. Others of us, you're not sure but you're in a situation in your life where you're looking around the battlefield and you are looking and counting the losses and you're saying, my goodness, there's a lot of carnage. Why, why is this happening? And we believe, and, and our own experience tells us too, that when people try to help us without knowing the full extent of the carnage that's within us, and they try to give us a line, a single sort of thought to try to rework our pain, we generally end up being offended and wounded and angry at them. So there isn't an easy answer. When people try to find the because answer for our deep pain, our deep questions, our most soul-level kinds of why questions, and they give us a one-liner to try and resolve it, it only wounds us deeper. So for those of you who are in that situation, experiencing that deep pain, what I want to say is this. I don't have a because answer for you. And I would be skeptical of people who do have a very simple because answer for your why question. But I would say this. What the church gets to do is stand with people in their greatest moments 
in celebration and in victory and in joy. And we also say to those people who are suffering the deepest, you don't have to be alone. We will stand with you. This is why, our, this is why Mariners put such a huge emphasis on things like rooted and life groups, which is to say we have a language we're talking about in a space that is for authenticity and realness in which we say, I'm in this situation, will you stand with me? And the church says, yes. You do not have to be alone. There is carnage. There are no simple answers. And there are some things, perhaps, that we need to let go of. I'm going to read you this sort of the rest of the story, at least this episode. This is kind of the, this is kind of the general journey of God's people, but this is the sort of the end of this episode. Verse, seven, uh, sorry, verse 5 says this. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as the leader of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 7, when the, when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. Verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Uncontrollable God. Responding to the confessions and the need of his people. Would you close your eyes as we pray? Lord, we're people... We confess who have equated and continue to equate joy with control. Lord, some of us in this room have adopted the short-term promises of little gods who can deliver on the short term. And they are taking us away from you. God, we surrender those to you now. We identify them, we name them, and we release them. We belong to you. And others of us are in a situation of deep pain and loneliness, and the why questions that we have are overwhelming. And while people have tried to offer us becauses that just don't seem to suffice, God, we just are so alone. Where would you bring to us people who would stand with us that we don't have to be alone? Would we take a next step to invite people to be a part of that with us? That no one was intended to sort of walk through this life and the deep pains of this life alone. And so God, as we respond, even as we began our service with the very notion that you do give and take away and that somehow in our own hearts we would choose to say that you would be blessed. Jesus, this is a courageous prayer to follow an uncontrollable God. Hear our prayer, our collective prayer as we respond. In your name, Jesus. Amen.